you would, turn back with me to our first scripture reading, prose translation of Psalm 5. That is our text for this evening. Before we begin, I'd like to begin with reminding you perhaps of a quote that I've given to you several times before, and that's from Martin Luther. Luther said that affliction is the Christian seminary. And indeed, in many ways it is. You can also look at affliction in the life of the believer as something like a hurricane in the soul. It goes in and it sweeps away all of that which is not well-grounded, all of that which is not so weighty. It lays bare those things that are fundamental. It allows that to remain only, which is truly foundational. So is affliction for the Christian. And in Psalm 5, you have something of that experience. You have affliction coming as a great gust, a hurricane gust, and and it drives the psalmist to see that which is most important. And friend, it's not an exaggeration this evening to say that what the psalmist presents to us in this psalm is the most important consideration that you and I can have on this side of the grave. The themes that he takes up having been driven in these ways in his mind and in his heart, those themes are the weightiest of themes for the sons of men to consider. It is affliction that the psalmist is faced with. You see that in the second verse. He cries, hearken unto the voice of my cry. And and literally the word cry there could be be translated simply distressed plea. Uh, The man is pressed through these, these pinching afflictions to the point of this exclamation. And then if you come down to verse 8, you'll notice that he mentions his enemies. And again, literally, these ones are not just called enemies generally in the original. They are those who are stalkers. They're those who lie in wait, following as it were the psalmist as he makes his passage through this life. And and all that is supposed to indicate that they they are planning ambush, seeking at any moment to steal the psalmist, to take him, and some fault, to exploit him, to find a point in his weakness, and that to work his destruction. Those are the two points in the psalm that indicate the man is under great distress. And so in many ways, friend, as we consider what we did last week, the fourth psalm, the context is very similar. The man is pressed, and he's pressed very close to his own heart. But I want you to notice that as we go through this psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist does make petition, the first two verses, but then as you come to verses 3 to 6, he moves from petition to something of an affirmation, an affirmation regarding the wicked. Verses 7 to 8, he mixes affirmation with petition, but with regard to himself. Verses 9 and 10, He does the same thing. He affirms something that is true, and he makes a petition based on that truth, but with now regarding the wicked. And then he closes in verses 11 and 12, again, once more with a petition, and then a statement of affirmation, something regarding the godly. And what's so striking about that, friend, is the fact that though the occasion is a real affliction, one that's quite palpable to the psalmist, you recognize that those points of affirmation are quite general. In fact, 
aside from those two points indicated already, we wouldn't know that the psalmist was in affliction. These are very general meditations that, that go far higher than the psalmist's own context and, and take in categories that are far broader than simply himself and his enemies. So what is going on here? If the man is under such distress, why is he thinking in such general ways? Well, friend, that brings us really to the theme. And the theme, as we look at these verses, really comes to us at the third verse, where the psalmist says simply, I will direct, that is, lay before my prayer unto thee. This is what the psalmist is doing. If you come down to verse 7, he elaborates a wee bit further. He says, I will come into thy house. Later, he will worship toward thy holy temple. Now, all of this I want you to notice is the work of David. He is presenting his prayers. He is the one going into the worship of God. But then I want you to notice how he contrasts that with his enemies. Verse 5, they shall not stand in thy sight. Verse 10, he says, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. There's an obvious contrast that the psalmist is drawing down upon here. He's, he's contrasting what he's doing and how he will approach God and how his enemies, they won't. In point of fact, how his enemies can't. What you see here then, friend, is that while the psalmist is faced with very real and personal affliction, he meditates deeply and very generally on the theme of who may and who may not approach God expecting mercy. I said to you that these are weighty themes, and friend, as we work through the psalm, I trust we'll see just that. The psalmist presents to us in this fifth psalm, though an afflicted man, though a man with many distressed cries, a man who nonetheless knows that souls must approach God sincerely. If they would approach him acceptably, they must do so sincerely. I want us to see this briefly this evening under three headings. I want us to see the insincerity that the psalmist presents to us, what it looks like. Then I want us to see the introspection that the psalmist gives for us out of his own experience, something as an example, a paradigm for us to follow. And then thirdly, I want us to consider the instrument of his approach to God. Take first of all the insincerity that you have here in the fifth verse. In verse 5, he refers to those unlike himself, those who are his enemies, he calls them simply the foolish. Verse 5, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Now, now friend, you recognize here that we're not looking at, at different classes of sinners in this psalm. He is describing sinners generally, but using various terms to do so. And in this case, very much like the fourth psalm, the psalmist reminds us that the wicked are not wise. This is so very crucial because what he is saying here is that that the truth of the matter is, the godless are always foolish. Let them be pretending howsoever great they might to, to some amount of wisdom. They are, in the word of God, concluded to be foolish. Then as you come further throughout this, you notice that he simply refers to them generally as workers of iniquity. In verse 9, he says, there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part 
is very wickedness. Now I want you to notice again that the psalmist is describing these sinners not just as his enemies. He is describing them in very, very general terms. And in verse 10 we see why he's doing that. The ones whom he has in view are those that have rebelled against thee, against the Lord. While they include David's personal enemies, they also include universally all of those who are God's rebels. Now what's so striking about this, friend, is you recognize that in David's immediate experience, the ones whom he is here describing, would most of them be members of the visible church? I think we often forget that when we come to the psalm, and psalms like it. The ones with whom David had most familiarity and the ones who were closest to him so as to stalk him were those who made some profession of faith. And so what the psalmist describes here are those who are hypocrites in Zion. Largely, he describes those who are in the visible church, but who are rebels to God nonetheless. But then as you remember in Romans Romans 3 and verse 13, the, the, the apostle lifts this text out to describe for us not only those who who are within the visible church, those who are hypocrites outside of of Christ, but he also uses this psalm to describe all of mankind. In that katana, really starting at verse 10 and going right through, the the psalmist is, is deployed time and time again to describe the universal condition of man in his fallen state. This psalm is part of that katana. And so, friend, what you and I learn from this, as the psalmist is describing these enemies, he's really setting before us a description of all natural men. And he shows here plainly that natural men cannot approach God sincerely. Now, what do I mean by that word sincerely? And I think that's quite important for us to begin with this evening. I don't mean by that that they they have no intentions to draw near to God. I mean by that that they have no godly sincerity to do so. And there is a distinction. Men may intend to approach God, but but not for godly ends. And so, friend, what you find here is that these are those. These are those who would approach God, but who, as the psalmist himself describes them, when they open their mouth, they reveal they are but sepulchers of death. When they approach God, They do so as liars, no faithfulness in their mouth, whose inward part is very wickedness. Now, as you look at that last statement, their inward part is very wickedness. I want you to notice that in the original, it would be translated literally in the plural, but but the sense is that this is wickedness in the abstract. In other words, this is, as it were, the, the personification of evil. That's the sense in the original. It's a striking use of the word. Especially whenever you consider what's gone before. In verse 4, the psalmist says, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. What the psalmist has done is he said that the ones whom he is here describing, which the apostle says is all of natural mankind out of Christ, he says such cannot dwell with God. 
They are, as it were, wickedness, evil in the abstract. And, says the psalmist, evil shall not dwell with him. The picture that you and I receive here of man's natural insincerity is that he is a world of iniquity. I think, friend, you and I, we need to meditate on that perhaps more than we do. The depth of man's sin, the root of iniquity lodged in his breast. Friend, it's here described for us as wickedness in the abstract. The psalmist must heap one image after another to try to communicate to our slow minds just how dark and how deadly man is by nature. It's a striking picture. And friend, if we take all that he says before us here, he's obviously painting a picture of one who cannot, has a moral inability to approach God sincerely. If the root of iniquity is such that his inward part is very wickedness, without some radical change, friend, how could he approach God aright? Calvin, you perhaps remember, he describes... He describes man's condition in this way. He says it, it is part of God's wise providence that infants in the womb are, are not stronger than their mothers. Because such is the inward corruption of men from conception that from malcontent they would rise up and strangle their own mothers if they could. I don't know, friend, if you think of man's depravity in those ways. But the psalmist does. He says their inward part is just wickedness as it were in the abstract. While man is not as bad as he could be, friend, man is worse than you and I could imagine. Man is a monster. Friend, if it were not for the restraining grace of God, oh friend, no nightmare that you and I have ever had could compare to what we find in the breast of men. What you see in this psalm, friend, ought to drive us as it did as it did Paul. In Romans 7, you remember that as he contemplates the wickedness that lies even within, within his own flesh, even as a believer, it drives him to that exclamation, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Friend, when you and I meditate on a psalm like this, with so many pictures of what is natively in man, And surely we should have a similar experience. We contemplate what is yet in our flesh, even as Christians. Friend, it should lead us, drive us to Christ, and certainly drive us out of ourselves. Friend, that's the picture of insincerity that you and I receive from this fifth psalm. Those who cannot approach God aright. But I want you briefly to notice here at verse 7, that contrast where the psalmist says, but as for me, And friend, I want you to notice that that contrast certainly is emphatic. This is a point of, of, as it were, arrival. The psalmist has made his petitions to God, verses 1 and 2. He's descended into some consideration of those who are the wicked in the intervening verses. And now he reflects on himself. After saying that the foolish shall not stand in thy sight, he says of himself, in thy fear will I worship. The word worship there is the idea of due reverence. He will do so in the sight of God as he worships 
as he dwells, as he exalts God in the temple and prays. My friend, what, what I want you to recognize here is that the psalmist is invoking all of these terms that if we were more familiar with our Old Testaments, we would know he's, he is thinking primarily about corporate worship. He is thinking about worshiping in the temple. In fact, even appearing before the sight of God, you remember throughout the Old Testament, that is often used euphemistically to, to describe one's approach in corporate worship under the means of grace. And so the psalmist is thinking, of course, about the worship of God. But he's not doing so ritualistically. He, Of course, he is approaching God in solemn worship, but the point is he's approaching God in the act. He's not just engaging in motions or forms. The psalmist here is meditating about a true approach to the living God through the means of grace. And friend, what this text shows us is that David weighed himself before doing so. He makes this survey of the insincere to ask really himself, can he approach God any differently? And the conclusion of verse 7 is yes. But as for me, he says, in thy fear will I worship. The psalmist notes a marked contrast between the wicked previously described and himself. What this text teaches us, friend, by example, is that all must strive to know their sincerity. The psalmist just engaging in this contrast should remind us of this important thing. You know, you remember in Ecclesiastes 5, the preacher tells us, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Again, the scriptures speak of of going to corporate worship as appearing before the living God. And friend, all of that demands the kind of work that you see the psalmist engaged in here. He reflects on those who cannot approach God aright. And after careful and, and prayerful weighing of his own condition, he comes to the conclusion that he may approach. And friend, why is this so significant? And why is the psalmist under affliction thinking the way in this way about corporate worship? Again, I think in our generation this perhaps might be lost on, on most evangelicals. But he's thinking about corporate worship, friend, because he recognizes that that is the closest approach that he can expect to have with the Lord on this side of glory. And friend, if that's true, then certainly he must weigh himself. He must engage in careful and prayerful introspection. Friend, if this is the closest meeting that men have with the living God on this side of the grave, then our preparations to come to worship are really, friend, only preparing us for that moment on the other side, the grave. You see here the psalmist is prepared. If he's prepared for one, then he's prepared for the other. But I want us to close, friend, by looking at the instrument by which he approaches the Lord, in which he says that he will come into the Lord's house in the multitude of God's mercy. I want you to notice just immediately that he precludes any possibility for self-righteousness or merit. He comes to God only by his mercy. And then come down to verse 11. He says this, Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. 
Now that's a striking statement. It's a striking statement because up to this point, you and I have seen a very clear picture of the native wickedness in fallen men. He's described those who work iniquity. But in verse 11, he opens his description of the righteous by describing them simply as those who rely or trust in the Lord. You and, you and I would almost expect a very different kind of comparison. Workers of iniquity contrast to the doers of righteousness. And while he will come to that, the first point of distinction that he makes is that these ones who may expect the blessing of God are those who trust in him. Friend, this shows us that the psalmist here in verse 7 and verse 11 has a certain type of sincerity. What you and I should call a gospel sincerity. And it is through that faith and only through that faith as an instrument that he expects to approach God. Friend, this is so very crucial. What you find here is the psalmist is teaching us that gospel sincerity alone, gospel sincerity alone is acceptable to God. And friend, gospel sincerity really consists of two things. It's principle. The formal instrument of men's approach to God in this way, of course, is saving faith. Believing that God is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Approaching him through Jesus Christ, holding to Christ as, as Christ is clothed in the promises. That is a gospel approach to the living God. Approaching him only through the one who makes them accepted. Namely, the beloved. Friend, it's important for us to understand that the psalmist in the Old Covenant and every Christian in the New understood well that the only way to approach God acceptably was under free mercy and by laying hold of God by faith through his Messiah. But I want you to notice that it's not trust alone. Trust is the formal instrument, but that trust is not alone. If you look at the 11th verse again, you'll notice that the psalmist goes on to describe these ones. He says there that these are those, they put their trust in thee, they rejoice, they shout for joy, because thou defendest them. They are those, he says at the very end, that love thy name. Friend, what you recognize here is that the psalmist also acknowledges a radical change. Contrast, friend, the heart of those who were described previously, their inward part being very wickedness, with those described in verse 11, those who love the Lord's name. Here the psalmist recognizes that that faith that alone allows men to approach God acceptably that only is exercised through Jesus Christ. Well, friend, it's from a heart that has been changed so as to love the God whom once they hated. And so as we close and we apply this, as we apply this text, friend, you and I, we are driven to make the same kind of contrast that the psalmist does. You and I are supposed to ask, are we, as those described previously, the, the insincere? Or are we like the psalmist? And friend, what you recognize in this fifth psalm then is that 
That though the man is under the blast of affliction, well, he is able to carefully weigh his case. You see in the first three verses there, the man exercises faith. But then as you go throughout the rest of the psalm and you watch the psalmist as he describes himself, you'll notice that that faith is, is active. It's a faith that leads him to worship, not to complacency. Friend, it's a faith that at the end you see here that, that lays hold of God and waits for the fulfillment of that promise while he loves the name of the Lord. And what you see here then, friend, is, is a picture of how you and I are supposed to engage in the self-same work. Are we exercising faith? Do we see any of its fruit? And friend, are we willing to await those greater seals, confirmations, as we wait upon the Lord? But as we close, friend, finally, the two points of comfort from this text we can't miss Because here what you recognize is the psalmist's principal comfort is not even the sincerity of his faith. Friend, that's so very crucial. Even a sincere believer has so much dross mixed in his believing. That can't be the ground of his comfort. Faith is the instrument that lays hold of the promise. But friend, make no mistake, it's the promise itself that is the grounding of one's peace. And what you see is the same very thing in the psalmist. It is by God's mercy that he may be well received. It is by his trusting in God's Messiah that he expects a favorable reception. Friend, it is Christ only that is the ground of the believer's hope. And here you see that in the case of the psalmist. And then, friend, you notice this, that while under affliction, the promises that he lays hold of are nothing less than the rejoicing of God's people because the Lord defends them. He compasses them as a shield. And so, friend, we, well, we close as we began. The psalmist is an, is an afflicted man. There's no question about that. But under that affliction, you have every other distraction removed. And he comes to those fundamental things. Who may approach God and expect his mercy? Only those who lay hold of that mercy by faith. Who only lay hold of God's Messiah. And he says, friend, at the very end, that those who do so, though under a current blast of affliction, they will one day know even by experience that the Lord indeed does compass those about with a shield. Amen.